Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and we have an awesome show lined up for today. And I hope it's not going to be too controversial, but we'll just see how that goes. Before we get going with our great guest, I want to talk about a couple of really exciting events that are coming up. Last week, Johnny and I did decide that we would do conferences this fall because we've gotten our DVD uh, CEU project finished, and I guess we just get a little bored around here, so we decided we're going to travel. We'll be in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on Thursday, October 17th, and Friday, October 18th, and spots are already filling up for those two days, so if you want to go and live in Louisiana or Texas or Arkansas or Mississippi or anywhere else you would want to come from, I would love to see you in Baton Rouge on those two dates. The first day is the first conference. It's Earth Speech Language Development, Taking Theory to the Floor. The second day is Building Virtual Invitation in Toddlers. And again, even if you've seen that first course before, we've got some new video clips that we're sliding in there and updated information and evidence-based practice um, so even if you saw me when I'm here in 2010 and 2011, come back because we are going to have a great, great couple of days. And I know that event is going to sell out. So do not wait until the last minute to register. You will not um, have a spot. And I hate getting those calls that last week where people think they can cry and kind of make me reinvent a seat for them. That is not going to happen. So if you want to go to Baton Rouge, you need to get on the website, teachmetotalk.com, and register today. And we're definitely going to be in Charleston, West Virginia, and I was there in 2011, and it was just one of my favorite conferences ever, although I guess I say that about everywhere. But West Virginia was fun, 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 and we'll be back there. And those dates are Thursday, November 7th, and Friday, November 8th. This year we'll be at the Charleston Civic Center, so we can accommodate tons of people so tell your friends tell your tell whoever you want to come because I want to see you guys there in Charleston and if you are from a faraway place and are thinking of traveling to come to an event that might be the best one I've never flown into Charleston before but um, it's a fun city everything is within walking distance and again we're going to have plenty of room for that conference so that might be one to do. We are working on an event in in Kentucky, in Louisville. We don't have our hotel arrangements finalized yet, but I hope by next week's podcast we have that worked out as well. And that's also a great event to fly into. Uh, we may not be quite close to the airport, but Louisville is such a fun city too. And we still have great weather in December. So, um, and now that I say that, it'll probably be a blizzard. Who knows? But wanted to go ahead and get that out there. And we think the dates are going to be the first Thursday and Friday in December if you're looking to um, come to Louisville. All right. So let's move on. And I want to introduce our guest today. It's Melinda. Hi, Melinda. Hi. I'm so excited that you called. And Melinda is an ADN therapist, and I got a really great email from her in, uh, I guess it was this last month, in August. Yeah, it was, where she, yeah. Where she asked me some questions, and we, I talked to Melinda a little bit before the show, and I said, let me just read your email, because that will give good background, and then we'll kind of go from there. So is that still okay, Melinda, for me to read your email? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So she says, I just found you a couple of months ago, but I love your ideas and suggestions. I've recently started listening to your podcast, and I love hearing your ideas, comments, and opinions on the various topics. Your guests are great, too. I have some questions for you, though, if you wouldn't mind answering them. She says, just to tell you about me, I'm a behavior therapist and a graduate student in the field of behavior analysis. And for those of you listening, we call that ABA, she's an ABA person, an ABA therapist, so applied behavior analysis. That's what that little, those abbreviations stand for, <laughs> that acronym. Okay, and she said, I used to believe in this field wholeheartedly. However, I started working with a little guy last year in October, 
And he's really made me think and work harder. And, boy, don't we all have little friends <laughs> like that. And then she goes on to say, I've read so much information in the last year than I've ever read. His family is going the biomedical route, which I know is a whole separate topic on its own, but something interesting is happening with him. When I first started working with him, we were working about 11 hours a week. After his mom decided to stay home, we increased to 19 hours a week in about five-hour sessions. Earlier this year, we cut down to eight hours and two-hour sessions four days a week. And this is the this is the part that really, when I started really sitting up on the edge of my seat when I was reading Melinda's email, she says, since cutting down, he's made incredible progress. I just let that sink in a minute. If you're exercising or driving or walking or whatever you do, do while you listen to the show, since cutting down, he has made incredible progress. He also has a great family that engages him. He's learned so much from them. I'm telling you this so that you will understand why I'm asking these questions. And, again, while I was reading this email, boy, now I was just on the edge of my seat thinking, what's she going to say? What's she, what's she going to ask? And she says, I know from reading your manual, and, Melinda, you're talking about teach me to talk the therapy manual, right? Is that what you were saying? Is that the book you're referring to, the the therapy manual with the red red coil? Melinda? Oh, my goodness, she's not there. Hopefully she'll call back. I guess we lost her. Okay, here we go. I was looking to make sure I wasn't the one cut off, but I'm not. So hopefully, okay, here she, here she's back. I'm back, sorry. <laughs> You're back. All right, good. That scared me for a minute. Okay, so Melinda, are you talking <laughs> about the therapy man? Teach me to talk the therapy manual. You said I know from reading your manual. Yes, yes, that's the money. Okay. She said, I know from reading your manual there's some things you like about ABA and there's some other things that maybe that you think maybe aren't an appropriate method of teaching. And you say in our assessment, and you're talking about your ABA assessment, to are kind of locked down to the order that we teach skills, like matching is an urban skill, and so are puzzles instead of using puzzles to teach other skills. And so you're asking me in your experience what's your rate of success. And you say, I guess by success I mean clients meeting their goals. And you say, I've seen ABA work, but I think that the same skills can be taught away from the table and not in drills. It also makes it easier to train parents and ensure that they're facilitating the same activities when I'm not there. Do you have clients with autism who also receive other types of therapy in addition to speech therapy? And then you go on to ask other fantastic questions. What would be your ideal therapy situation? The number of hours each week with the therapist, the number of hours each week with parents interacting with the child, and then you say when you're training families from out of town, do you teach them to keep data, or is there some other way that they keep up with their progress so that you know when to update goals? And then you went on to say, I just love the idea of playing and winning the kid over and teaching skills through his sheer excitement and enjoyment. All of this is causing me to think outside the box, and again, that would be you're talking about your own field there, right, your ABA field? Yes. But it's yeah. definitely going outside the box, and some BCBAs would think I'm kooky, which I just thought was hysterical. <laughs> okay. And then you say, I'm glad, though, that I've had the experience of looking outside because it's prompting me to discover the best way to teach children. You also want some more information about groups because you've heard that I led a group and you might have, you know, need some ideas and direction in that situation. And then you closed with what I think this is great and this is what I wanted to open up the show with. I would like to note, note that I do think there will always be a place for a very structured behavioral analytic approach, mostly with adolescents and adults and some children that have severe behaviors. Thank you. I appreciate your time and your input. And let me just start the show by saying that I don't disagree with you. I totally agree that there is a place for ABA, and I've had some children who um, could not meet goals any other way unless it was really broken down into big-time drill and into very structured baby step, um, you know, kind of, and I'm not being disrespectful when I say this, but kind of do or die, they couldn't get it any other way until it was presented in that very rote manner. So let me just say off the bat, I am not anti-ABA. I am not (laughs) uh, 
completely opposed to those very structured kinds of teaching tasks for children who require that. So, and we were kind of laughing before the show, Melinda, and I was saying, gosh, I don't want to get a lot of hate mail after we do the show. I don't want this to be controversial. I want this just to be a discussion and just where we kind of talk about things and talk about how what you feel based on your experience and what I feel based on my experience, and we'll kind of see where those overlap. And I know that you're kind of, again, not rethinking ABA because I, that's who you are and that's what you do. And right. I respect that. But I love that you're thinking with these really young kids, maybe there's room for both. Maybe there's room right, for a more right. play-based approach. And so that's kind of where you're coming from, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Because I like okay. I like that age group. <laughs> so. Me too. I know people will tell me. I, I saw a friend of mine last week in the. She used to work for us, and she's gone back to she before before she worked for us. She did um, school based services, and she was an elementary age person. And now, then she worked for us for a few years, and you know worked with babies and toddlers. And now she's back, and she's telling me she's doing middle school. And I was going middle school. Oh, <laughs> joking about that. But it's so nice that we have all of these opportunities in our fields to really specialize and find a niche and, and find who right. what population we love. And so you've decided you like the itty-bitty kids better too, right? I do. I, I do like working with older kids with severe behavior problems, though. I do enjoy that. I guess because I get to really use my behavioral right. stuff, you know, and it, wor- and it works. It's, you know, successful. Um, and right. so, but I, I, but I do like playing with the little toddlers and things because, you know, you, you play and you have fun right. and they're, they're really cute. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And here's the deal too. I have a lot of people who, okay, let me, let me clarify a lot. Every city I go to and every time I speak in a conference, I'll always have one or two people that kind of come up to me and maybe in a break at the end and they're almost whispering and they'll say, I'm not really a speech therapist. I'm an ABA person. Or they'll say, I'm a speech pathologist, but I went back and got my master's in ABA or, you know, whatever they call Mm -hmm. it. Whatever your initials are, they'll say they went and got that and they'll say, but I don't want you to point me out in the crowd or anything because I think <laughs> there's always this idea that there's going to be, again, it's one side or the other when for yes. a lot of kids the combination may be a little bit better. Right, and right, so right. Kind of, well, yes. yeah. Or as kids progress I, and as kids get older, there certainly mm-hmm. may be children who are going to benefit at that point when they're, mm-hmm. I don't want to say developmentally ready, but just when they're a teeny bit older than two and are able to tolerate any kind of table activity better than right. they would have had when they were toddlers. Now, has that been your experience, Melinda, that it's been easier to kind of do your thing when kids are past that toddler period? Oh, a little bit. Um, and, and, the, and some BCBAs, I mean, there are different like techniques that BCBAs use. So not right. not all BCBAs are like drill, drill, drill at the table. Right. You know, a lot right. of them, especially with your younger children, might be a little more flexible, especially um, because, you know, we do a thing called natural environment teaching, which is that, uh-huh. you know, right. um, and that's exactly what that what that is. And, and that's how we want children to learn. I mean, that's the ideal situation. Yeah. But I think that sometimes because we're taught about discrete trial or intensive teaching that sometimes – Maybe we focus too much on that, or or it can get kind of mis um, misinterpreted. Does that make sense? Right. You know, like where totally. oh well, we should be working at the table when it's like um, like for instance, you know, a few weeks ago, one of my um, little clients, we were on the floor and we were singing and he was enjoying and we were just taking a break really and he was enjoying it. Well, he was enjoying it so much that I was like, that I was just like I was just kind of How like can I go down? oh. 
Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, he, let's just keep going. So I just kept going. And I told my supervisor, I said, um, so he did this, and we just kept going. She's like, that's fine. That's great, because he's making yeah. eye contact. He's engaging. And, and those were things at that time we had not seen very much in him, not at least with me. Now, with mom and dad, sure, but not with me. And so that was great. That was like a big move for him. So so I think there sure. are some out there that are, you know, a little more flexible. And I think it's just about finding the right mix for that kid. And yeah. that's where, um, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And you were asking me how to did had I seen children that were getting speech therapy in addition to other services? Yes, I've worked with probably I don't I don't know that I could put a number on it. Less than a hundred, but more than a handful of children mm-hmm. who also had ABA at some point in their therapy plan. And again, right. I I never would be on a team that was on an ABA only team because I am not ABA trained. And so for me to even right. be there mean would mean that parents were kind of taking a a double track approach and they're kind of thinking, right. "Okay, I'm going to do ABA and some of this other stuff." And I've had a lot of parents right. that just kind of want to see what sticks. And see what works. Right. And I've had some parents that uh, I don't want to say that I've directed their ABA teams because that would that would be a misstatement. But I've certainly had a lot of input with we need to work. This is what we're working on in speech, and this is what I think you guys can do yeah. great at helping work on. And I've also though seen some disasters, Melinda, where. Therapists were working on, we're trying to work on articulation with children when that was completely uh-huh. inappropriate. Or right. they had children that are, if they were there, they were had children that is at two, they were trying to do like too long of a day, like a six hour session with a yeah. two year old that I was kind of struggling to get 60 minutes out of. So I've had some things too that that a lot of times I don't know that it was really the ABA person. I think it was ABA in itself. I think it was the person. I think it was the therapist that, like what you said, may have been able to pull it back a little bit and take a little less rigid stand, and we might have had a better outcome. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and I do have people that approach me at, at conferences that will say, you just don't realize how much ABA stuff you're really doing, Laura. Or you would, you would, re- you know, if I were really sitting and kind of looking at some of the stuff that you're doing, you're pretty darn, you are structured in this clip or that clip or whatever. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Melinda, when you said it just depends on the kid. And you just got to depend, yeah. really kind of tease out what part is going to work for what kid and then really apply right. uh, whatever strategy can be effective. Yeah. Well, and a lot of the techniques, though, can be applied in any situation, you know. Sure. So. Sure, sure. And yeah. so I thought it was so great when I got your email because I don't think that we've ever talked about it in this way in my, you know, I'm coming up on the fifth anniversary of the show. It may have already passed since September. But, you know, we've had a lot of different shows, but I've never I've never talked to um, – a real live ABA therapist on a show, so it's so exciting. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> go. Well, so we can talk about it. But again, I've seen some positives, certainly some positives. I have a little guy right now who let's let me think how old he is. He's I guess he's about four and a half, and I he's mm-hmm. um, pretty severe as far as the severity range goes with. Um, you know, he has a full diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder. We worked mm-hmm. a lot on social games and on getting him just responsive, worked a ton on um, verbal routines because every once in a while he would pop out some stuff and, you know, a little bit echoalic, <laughs> but at least he was talking. Uh-huh. Uh, but he, yeah. And his mom did a lot of different stuff. Did some, We did some teach things. I don't know if that means anything to you. Uh, but, oh, yes. Um, yes, I know what that okay, is. Okay, so we did, we did some structured visual things with him. We did pets, but nothing was ever as as ultra successful as we wanted. I mean, we changed approaches a lot, and this is a family that I really got to become 
friends with, and I didn't see regularly after he was three, so now he's four and a half. His mom mm-hmm. has found an ABA therapist, and it, he's, ha- he's having more success with that now than yeah. with any other thing that we did. So uh, certainly, right. certainly there are going to be children who haven't responded to anything else that certainly need that. And I think, too, this little guy is just now old enough where maturation is finally kicking in, and they're going to see right. some nice changes with him, too, because it's just going to start happening for him. So I certainly yeah. have seen, you know, kind of both, both scenarios and both extremes. So, okay, so tell me what you want to talk about first. You've laid the groundwork there with how <laughs> how we've been totally uh, open to we're going to do whatever it takes to work for Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I guess your ideal situation would be first. Like what your idea of an of a great like the best situation for a kid, I guess. I mean, I know that varies, and it's hard to say like a general sense, but just yeah. generally speaking, you know. Okay. This is what I think. I think it is going to be whatever works for the kid, and sometimes we do have to mess around with our frequency or with our who's going to be doing what or whatever. But let me just say this: rather than ideal therapy situation. Let's look at kind of time, that number of hours piece, because yeah. that's where what I think we can we can do the most um, good and bad with. And let let me just say, right. with an ABA model, how much time are you guys typically looking at that you would say would be kind of a standard plan for a kid? Well. Uh, for a kid who has very low um, skill set, you know, who just doesn't uh-huh. have a lot of skills, maybe more severe um, or younger or nonverbal, you know, those types of things. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the research says that uh, those kids need 30 to 40 hours of therapy a week. So, And that's yeah. what the research supports as, as being the most productive and the most successful. So naturally professionals, you know, we um, that's what we suggest sure. to parents. Now, the company that I work Are you still there? Oh, we lost Melinda again. Okay, while she's waiting to call back in, I'm going to say, okay, Melinda has just said 30 to 40 hours a week. I like to use Dr. Stanley Greenspan's number of time. Um, He recommends that children get 20 to 25. Here's Melinda again. You're back. Okay. Okay. This yes. is what I'm. This is what I was saying when when you were off. I use Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who is a four time guy who did right. GIR therapy. I know you know, and he's kind of the when people say, "Are you going to do ABA or four time?" It's what a lot of right. people kind of contrast there, and the four time approach really is a relationship based approach, and there are some structured things that you're doing, but what you're really doing is more than anything, just establishing that social connectedness piece and that emotional responsive piece, and that trumps everything else in a four-time approach. And the four-time approach says that children need 20 to 25 hours a week of engagement with an adult. And so, again, it's not quite the same as 30 to 40 hours a week, but let me just tell you, I was talking to real families, and real therapists, when they may be getting one hour a week of speech, for me to look a mom in the eye and say, hey, listen, he needs at least 20 to 25 hours a week, they think that sometimes is unattainable. And so yeah. that's half of, or a little more than, you know, two-thirds of what an ABA program might work. And here's what I always tell parents about that. I say if you devote that much time to anything, you're going to get better and that's why mm-hmm. I think, well, first of all, it's easier to do research a lot of times with an ABA model because it is more structured and what you're measuring is sometimes easier than maybe if we were looking at a straight four-time approach, which I really don't use either. You know, it was, I, I mm-hmm. guess I was kind right. of in the middle between those two approaches. But anytime you're going to devote that much time, 
to working on skills, I mean, I think that's what makes it so successful is just the sheer number well, yeah. of hours. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, and the focus is on the skills, like right. all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and so you're going to get better. I mean, if I, I think outside of rollerblading or something that I would be horrible <laughs> at, if I did anything 30 to 40 hours a week, I think I would get better, don't you? Uh, yeah. You know, what skill it is. Yeah, because it's just kind of a time thing. And I, I think, but I, when I'm talking to parents, that, that's what I'll say. And parents who, who are bringing the kids from out of state who are coming in for those um, kind of consultative assessments where they're here for three days or whatever, and they're saying, what do you think about this ABA thing? You know, we're currently doing 25 hours a week or, you know, whatever they're doing. Should we up it? Should we lower it? Should we? That's going to always be based, I think, on how the kid is responding. You had an interesting situation where the little guy you were talking about, why Why did you guys decrease it? Did you feel like it was just, it was just way too much? Well, the funding source, um, well, yeah. kind of. The funding source kind of changed, and so um, I really needed to decrease hours. So that was part yeah. of the thing. And then um, uh, dad has a particular work situation where he's off during the week. You know, his uh-huh. weekend is, like, in the middle of the week. And so right. they wanted, like, and mom was just having trouble balancing it all and trying to sure. figure it all out. And like, like the families you're talking about, you know, it's like, how can we, we, we want to do what's best for our child at the same time. We need to be a family. We need to, um, right. and she, you know, she just felt like she needed some kind of just some downtime, you know, and, yeah. and especially since he was off during the week. And so I, I don't even go one whole day during the week so they can just have family time. But, um, yeah. but I wasn't real concerned about it because I know that he's not just doing whatever he wants. I mean, they're playing right. with him. They're talking to him because he's learn he's still learning. And so, sure. and so when, when I was there though, you know, when we were there though, like the five hours a day or whatever, you know, it was, a, it was a lot of work and it was what we were doing and we were having to take a lot of breaks. Um, and yeah. so we weren't really actually working, you know, um, all sure. that time because we had to, we had to take breaks because, oh my goodness, you know, even me, I was just like, I knew <laughs> I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I can do it five hours in a row. You know, just just from a humanistic kind of point of view with, you know, that's a long time. That's like the whole darn day it would feel like, you know. Yeah, but there's a lot of therapists around that do that. So, I don't know. I mean, that's what they do. I know. I know. And, and, again, I don't want to get any nasty emails from people. Belinda and I are just having a good time talking about this. We are not being <laughs> mean or disrespectful or anything. I'm just saying from a really, uh, you know, just from a me, from my perspective, doing anything five hours in a row, it would be a chore uh, for me. Yeah. So you were looking at that just from a purely practical point of view of what kind of pull back. Hello? Okay, I'm back. Melinda. Now Melinda is off. Oh, well, we have never had this much technical difficulty. If you've hung in there with us, I'm going to say a big old thank you, and we hope that we'll get Melinda right back. We have Here she is. Are you there? I called, and there was nobody there. I mean, I was on the thing, and it was like, nobody. I know. Well, 
Here's what happened. I don't think it's just you. I think it's Blog Talk Radio because I got kicked off too for no reason. So okay. I think they're just having okay. some technical difficulties. Okay. So it's not you. It's not me. It's just uh, the you know technology. Just, yeah. There you go. All right. So. What were we saying? Because I was in such a panic trying to get back on that I think I've completely lost my train of thought. Okay, I was asking you, we were talking about the reasons that you cut back. Was your, now a fire truck, my goodness. Okay. (laughs) Did you, were you seeing progress with that little guy before you cut back? Or it all just kind of, do you think you started seeing more progress as you took a step back? What do you think happened there? Um, I think before there was progress, it was slow, but, uh, this was a a learner who, um, you know, at the very beginning, um, it just, it took a while for him to acquire skills just in general. That's just, you know, that's how Mm -hmm. he learned. He needed a lot of repetition. And so, um, he was, he was still, he was like two, you know, when we started. And so, um, he was just, it just took a long time. And so, um, but after, I don't know if maybe, you know, kind of talking with the parents and kind of them realizing, okay, if if she's not coming as much as she was, then we're going to have to kind of pick up our game too. I mean, they were always engaging, but I'm just wondering maybe it was a little bit of both like, okay, now that I'm Mm -hmm. only here for this short a time, I got to make the most of my time. And then, um, and to right about that time, he started to really come out of his, little shell I guess you could say Uh, you know before in the beginning his mom kind of refers to it as he seemed like he had a a fog over him you know just kind of like not not aware of things that were going on around him and so that was around that time too so it was probably a lot of like circumstantial things but then at the same time I think that on both sides we kind of upped our game a little because we realized okay our time is not what it was so we got to make the most of it and um, and he just started, you know, he was more social and things, and so um, that gave us the opportunity to really build on a lot of those skills. And so we were starting to see those. So that makes it feel too like, wow, he's really getting gaining a lot of skills because he's a completely different child, you know. He was ready. Yeah, he was developmentally yeah, ready yeah. at that point too. Whereas before, you were really struggling. And then once he got a little more social. And as you said, the fog lifted a little bit, and I think that's a great way to describe it. And certainly any therapist <laughs> who's worked more than a couple of years has seen that and has noticed that with a child. And you'll think, oh, my goodness, now he's ready. Now he's with yes. me. Now he knows and cares yes. that I'm in the room. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And so I do think that that's why really focusing on the social piece and working on that connectedness piece works great for a lot of kids because then we kind of get them to the point that they're Mm -hmm. ready to learn those other more language-based things or cognitive things, whereas before it was a big chore and nobody was as successful uh, because the kid just wasn't there yet. So that's why I think backing up and looking at those social things and really focusing on that and not going full steam ahead. And I know that you probably don't do this with with your goals because you wouldn't work on uh, talking with a child who wasn't imitative yet or who didn't have some prerequisite things, whereas a lot of speech therapists might go in the very first day and just, as I say, go for the jugular on words with a kid who in no way, state, or form is there yet. And that's all the speech therapist knows to do is really start with that, you know, okay, he's going to say a word today because I'm the speech therapist and that's why I'm here without really looking at how emotionally connected the child was or if he or she were, again, ready to imitate or how their play looked or their attention or anything. They just really kind of more anything other than being verb, and that for for that is a positive so with an ABA program. But you never do that. first, right? Well, um, we do we do start on skills. I mean, well, 
the type of ABA therapy that I do is verbal behavior, and so uh-huh. we um, we start with getting to know the child, and we call it pairing, but we do get to know the child first, and so we are having more fun, and we're really building up that, um, you know, see, I'm a fun person, we can have fun together, we can play, you're going to want to learn from me kind of thing, which is great, but then as soon as the kid is ready, you know, we're starting we're starting to work, and maybe they're not there yet, you know, and that was part of, I think that's yeah. part of why I emailed you too was because, you know, there are these prerequisites to learn, just to learning. Sure. And, sure. um, and in general, you know, I've been taught that, um, well, you just have to go ahead and start on requesting, start on these other skills because this is how it works. But then at the same yeah. time, it's like, but what if, but what if, what if they're not, because, and I guess this kid was a pretty like visual, I mean, a physical example uh-huh. of, of that, of not being ready, and now he right. is, and now he's learning. Okay, you know, right. now we're learning. Now we're, you know, and before right. it was like, I mean, he would, we would work on the same skill for months, and I'm right. just thinking, what if I had not spent that time doing that, but instead had spent my time really getting that social part of him out, right. you know, faster or something? I don't, I don't know. I mean, you can't go back and change what you did, but that's kind of um, – I guess the difference between what what I do and, like, what you do is, you know, there are those prerequisites and we don't really spend – we're kind of like the SLPs that go in and, you know, try to get a kid to talk. Well, we're going in and trying to get them to to make requests or to, um, you know – you know, work on, like, doing a shape sorter or puzzle or whatever. Yeah. And see, but here's the thing. I think that there's, you know, there's certainly – we said there's – to those approaches, there's certain on both sides because the kid's not ready, he's not ready, and so a lot of right. it doesn't matter whether you're a speech pathologist or an AB person. If you're if you don't know what to look for before, goal number one should happen. Right. For months and months and any kind of progress, and just for any parent who's listening or any therapist who's listening to the show, any time that you're working on the same thing for months and no progress, it means work at a level for a child. And that's something that right. you hear in grad school, you know, what, no matter what program you're going to. And so I always talk about right. this a lot in conferences. You know, you've got to kind of meet a kid, and every week on the show, you have to meet a kid where they are developmentally. You've been working right. on something a long time. You've got to back up and figure out what should come before this. Well, what is he missing? What does he not know how to do that's going to predispose him to being terrible at at what mm-hmm. we're trying to do? Because obviously what we're doing is not working. And a lot of the times, uh, well, this is what I always say, we can, we can change the child, but if we can't change the child, we have to change what we do first. And mo- more times than any, it means that we're going to back up and work on an easier goal. And so for when we're looking at expressive language, we're looking at talking. If we have a child who's nonverbal and who, again, we have not heard a peep from, not one imitation from, not anything that's even anywhere near a real word or a real imitation, we always then have to take a step back and think about what happens before that. And so I think that that's what made you with your little guy start looking around to see what else is out there. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what other yeah. approaches might there be? And I hope that's what leads lots of even early intervention SLPs to exploring something that they they may have not learned in grad school and they may only <laughs> know to go straight to that expressive language piece. And so we always talk about looking at a child before anything else happens, looking at that social engagement piece and um you said ABA people call that pairing. Now, are you looking at the social piece, then, Melinda, or are you looking at I want him to associate me with fun stuff he likes to do? That's kind of the at layman's that, term for yeah, pairing, at that, right? At that, yes, at that, ter- at that time we're uh, building rapport. Yeah, and that's uh, that's the focus because we don't want the learning situation to be an adversive one. So, right. um, you know, to be a... Yeah, oh, and I'll tell you, I've seen some ABA therapists that I think might miss that part of programming because, you know, I told you I've been, <laughs> I've had some teams that have worked great and some that have worked terrible, and sometimes it's because they they haven't spent enough time trying 
to kind of figure out what the kid likes and what some good motivators would be. Uh, and so now I'll know to say, right. pairing, what did you find with pairing? Tell me what you're doing well, with pairing. And, <laughs> and, and pairing is specific to verbal behavior, and not every um, ABA therapist is going to do ver- verbal behavior. So you might have to okay. point them in that direction. <laughs> dig a little deeper there. Okay. But I think that's really key because we have to kind of, again, meet kids where they are, not only developmentally, but where they are kind of with what they like to do and what's fun for them and what will hold their attention. And so that's what you're meaning by that. And as a therapist, and um, if moms are listening, if you have a therapist who's constantly trying to introduce your child to something new or get child to quit paying attention to one thing and shift attention to something else, that might be a red flag for you because we always have to meet kids with where they are, what they like to do, and kind of get ourselves in that way. It doesn't matter, you know, yeah. if you're calling it, establishing rapport, whatever you're doing there, mm-hmm. you're making sure that the child is engaging and that he yeah. likes you because to learn from you, a kid has to want to be with you first. So I love that that's yeah. where you start first. Yes. I think a lot of therapists, no matter what side of the, the team they're playing for, kind of miss that. Right. Um, right. Yeah, so good. We're on the same page there. Yes, <laughs> Melinda, do you guys work on receptive language, too, before you start all your verbal stuff? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Um, recept- well, because a lot of times, too, the kids we work with, they're, you know, especially if they're nonverbal or they have really delayed language skills or, you know, echolalia or, or um, issues like that, um, their re- receptive language skills kind of, they get them faster. So um, so we build yeah. on those. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, so we do start there. Yeah. Sometimes speech therapists do that, though. Or this is what will happen. The mom will say, you'll say, how well is he understanding language? And the mom will say something like, oh, he understands everything. <laughs> and then the speech pathologist starts out with a point of reference that's not really true. The child isn't really, right. doesn't really make good uh, links with language. So he doesn't really understand. Right. Dad haven't, don't, there's a gaping receptive language hole there that no one is not talking yet because he's not yet really understanding language. So that's certainly something that Right. Well, and, and typically we teach we teach receptive language before – we'll teach a skill receptively before we yes. teach the expressive part of it. And so we teach perfect. it first receptive and then expressive. And I was going to say um, on the uh, – the top two behavioral assessments or ABA, you know, assessments that your ABA people are going to use, um, receptive language is a section in that, you know, in the assessment, in the curriculum. I mean, receptive language yeah. is its own whole section. So As it should be. Yes. But I think a lot of pathologists, again, get so hyper-focused on that expressive piece that we're kind of right. missing that the child has to master it receptively first. So that's right. certainly something right. that that uh, we have, you know, that we have to pay good attention to. So we already kind of talked about getting through your email with the questions. We talked about the number of hours each week, right? You know, and kind of go that twenty to twenty-five hours. And and let me just say, that doesn't mean that you're going to be doing that one-on-one therapy that much. Our ABA friends may do that, but our our speech people, we're typically seeing kids one to two times a week, and then it's parents who have to make up that other right. part or another therapist or some other, um, maybe a preschool program. But but what I would right. say to parents is that 20 to 25 hours a week of engagement. Right. And then right. your your next question is, what do you do about data? Okay, let me just say I have worked with some families that would be okay with keeping data, but more often than not, they're not going to know how to do it or even be remotely interested in doing it. So I really talk to moms and dads about paying attention to what their child is doing when they're in that one-on-one playtime, and then how does that same skill look in real life? So if he can only ask for what 
if he can only sign or say cookie in the context of that one-on-one when you're doing down and dirty and it's, you know, kind of your playtime or your therapy time to do it, but he can't walk in the kitchen, you know, two hours later and cookie, you know, he's not there yet. Right. He's going to use that real right. life mess. Our only thing I think some moms that get so focused on keeping dates that are like writing down every single word or keeping a little tally every time a child has done it that they almost lose sight of the goal because they're too hyper on the darn data. But with right. those moms, right. I would have to say, you know, oh, we need to pull it back here. I need you to be more engaged in what you're doing than right, right, right. Yeah, and yeah, and so, sometimes data can do that. So, yeah, I think it's can with parents. So I am not, I mean, that would be something your training <laughs> has, you know, kind of necessitates that more so than I would ever want to be with uh, just a regular family kind of coming to see me. And so what I would be right. saying to them is, are you hearing that word spontaneously? Is your child able to, you know, yeah. follow a command you know, in the throes of getting ready in the morning versus during your one-on-one playtime. And so I'm always going to be looking at that kind of functional real-life approach versus what they did during that one-on-one playtime, which for me would be kind of their session time. So well, and I think I that that's easy for... Well, I think that's easy for families to understand and to kind of pay attention to, okay, in our general day-to-day life, you know, he did that at lunchtime. So, yeah, he's doing good with that. Yeah. Well, the only reason I ask that is because in the beginning, um, or, I mean, I still do, but not as much as I did. I mean, I did a lot of parent trainings. And so, um, and that was really fun, and I really enjoyed it. And that was always something I thought about was, I don't know that a mom with, like, three kids can take data like me, the 20-something-year-old, who's just working with one child, you know. Exactly. (laughs) And I don't think she should have to feel that she has to do that. I so. don't think so either, and that's why I hardly ever have people do it. And let me tell you what, what data-keeping to me would be, that a parent might keep a word journal and that it might be every word that they kind of hear their child say spontaneously, not imitated, just completely on his or her own, you know, a right. word journal every three days might be what we're tracking. Right. Or if I'm saying to mom, okay, we're going to work on these, you know, we're following, you know, if it's a receptive language goal, we're going to, you know, kind of chart how well he's following um, these really functional commands. Like this week we're going to work on go get your shoes and we're going to work on bring me your cup and we're going to work on, you know, close the door or throw your diaper in the trash or whatever we come up with. Right. My mom might kind of chart that. And by chart, I don't even know that moms really write that down because they don't really bring me a piece of paper. But they might say, well, most of the time he did it because that's just about the best that a mom could be able to do. Right, 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 right. And that's fine. I I understand that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Okay. let's talk about Greek before we go. And lots of speech (laughs) pathologists who've worked in center-based programs or School programs are kind of rolling their eyes right now going, Greeks, why are they even talking about Greeks? When I did Greeks, <laughs> I did, through the state of Kentucky's early intervention program, they paid for developmentally based groups of children. And I kind of took my own, you know, kind of made made that my own, made our play group was a language-based play group, whereas other Playgroups might have been more um, DI-based or, you know, the teacher-based part of that, the education mm-hmm. piece. Right. Kind of looking at everything. But because I'm a speech pathologist and do language, you know, that was our little spin on it, and that's what made our program different from everybody else's in town. So that kind of gave me that, that edge there. But we, I mean, we did them at that time. Kentucky paid twice a week, and they could come for two-and-a-half-hour sessions. So that's what we did, and we had incredible success. I used it just kind of as a preschool model where we did an opening little – we did a gross motor activity when everybody got there. We did an opening little circle time, and then we had themes, language themes. It might have been 
and again, more like a preschool model where we were doing transportation or we might have done the farm or we might have done things that go or any or food or anything that was more like a language based thing. And all of our activities were based on that. I did not do centers because I felt that that for so many of the children that we were seeing that that was just too, that required too much um, (laughs) independence and being able to stay in the same place or whatever and rotate when the teacher said, okay, find a new center. I knew our kids couldn't do that. So we just had, uh, we switched activities, you know, every 20 to 30 minutes. We had lots of activities for a two-hour session. We had snack time in there. We had a closing circle time. We always um, we always alternated between if we had an activity that was sitting like circle time, we always did a, a, a move-around activity after that. And after right. we would do kind of a, a gross matter activity, then we would come back to maybe, you know, if our theme was housekeeping, everybody had brooms and or pretend <laughs> vacuums, and we had a variety of toys that would be, you know, in keeping with that theme, and we would do that. And then we might go to the table and do a little fine motor activity based on that, whatever that theme was and if it you know you know if it was farms we might have been doing uh farm stickers or if it was if there's something that we could have a more century themed um activity with that's what we would do but we we moved frequently we alternated <laughs> the activities a lot if we had a group of kids that were needed to move more, we did a lot more up and down and running around the room playing activities than we ever did sitting because we just knew that developmentally right. those kids couldn't do it. And because we were a language-based program, we were really honed in on, on language the whole time, whether that be a receptive activity or an expressive activity or whatever we, we were doing, that was kind of our overall goal. But it was a great program. I had wonderful um, therapists who worked for me in that program, and they were phenomenal, and we had great, great success with that. But, again, it was more of a preschool model and totally language-based in that that's, we might have been doing some little fine motor things or gross motor things or whatever, but our overall goal was we're going to get these kids to understand and use language. Right, but lots right. Of Lots of uh, <laughs> little cooperative play activities where the adults, though, we were right in the threat of things. We weren't just observing or <laughs> keeping control. You know, we were really playing in right. a one-adult-to-three-child right. ratio. So great ratios and, you know, good, good okay. um, results. Now, what are you thinking about doing with that, Melinda? Do you have specific questions about that, or you were just wondering about that model? No, I just wanted to kind of know how you did your group. I mean, I've actually, I set in on a really, when I first started doing this, I set in on a group uh, for, you know, I would say uh, three, two, three, and four-year-olds were in this group, and it was a pretty small group, and um, a speech therapist who I think is one of the best I've ever seen, I don't know, she uh, she led it, and it was it was uh-huh. it was a lot like that. It was a lot like that, yeah. moving and um, doing different things and a lot of singing and following directions. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. But but the adults were right there to help them, you know, to show them and to kind of prompt them yeah. through it and, you know, a, yeah. lot of, um, a lot of prompting. But it got them kind of used to, you know, following somebody, like a leader, a teacher, whatever, for directions yeah. and, and kind of learning how to be in a room with other children and how to sit next to another child in a learning environment. So, and I think that that a lot of our kids aren't ready for that, you know, but they need to practice. So, Yeah, and it was a great model for that. And, again, all of our little guys were two because they were in um, the early intervention program in our state. For most of those children, it was their first experience with a little group (laughs) led program. We did have some moms that stayed in the room, but more often than not, the moms learned to kind of drop them off and then come back and pick them up two and a half hours later. We did have a television system that they could always, moms could stay if they wanted to and watch. And we kind of call that playgroup TV. So they were out in the lobby and, and you know, were able to see on the screen, you know, exactly what was going on if they were a little bit scared or nervous. Uh, but, again, the success of that program really was because we had super committed therapists 
who mm-hmm. were, I mean, it was our job to be totally engaged right. with those kids for two and a half hours. And we we talked about those kids at length before they came. We had a little kind of pre-session warm-up, and then after the session was over, Every day we sat as a group, whether there were two adults, two therapists that day or three therapists or how many ever, you know, depending upon our group size, where every single day we did our notes together and we talked about what worked for a child and what didn't work for a child and what the new goals for a particular child would be. And I think that that's what made it so successful, too, is we were looking at, you know, planning not only for the group but for our individual kiddos within that group. And so that would be my advice to anybody. And sometimes... People who lead those groups because of, you know, agency, you know, they just don't get enough planning time. So you've got to build your planning time in there so that it's right. as successful, you know, as, as you can get. And I was fortunate yes. enough to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to um, start. I think I'm going to start leading a little. It's gonna. It's not going to be a full-on group because it's only going to involve two children, but a play group. And these are kids yeah. who, you know, they have skills. They're, you know, mm-hmm. they learn really well, but they don't play so well next to another child, or they don't. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not going to engage if there's another child there. They're they're going to get really uncomfortable, and so kind yeah. of just getting them more. Um, just to be more okay with being in a group. Yeah. 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 And my advice to that would be look at keeping everything really developmentally appropriate. And so even if they're interacting with the adult more so than that's okay. And I would include a ton of grace motor activities because that's where I always saw any any child I've ever worked with in my career, whether I'm seeing them <laughs> in that little pleasure setting or with brothers and sisters or in a preschool environment or with a neighbor kid, whoever. It's usually during growth motor activities that they start to really develop that peer attention. And so if it's, if, okay. it's, if you're inside, if you're even if you're just running, if you're back is we're going to touch one wall and we're going to run all the way to the other side of the room and touch the other wall. And then we're going to run all the way back and touch the other wall. That might be your gross motor part, you know, and you may need to call 911 before for you before (laughs) doing that. But that kind of gross motor activity, anything that involves uh, big equipment like um, playground kind of climbing equipment or those big cardboard blocks, or a big ball or uh, scooters or any kind of gross motor thing is going to be your best chance at getting that initial positive attention. Um, any right. kind of those those little toys, that little sharing situation, I would not think that never promotes positive outcomes in children who were toddlers or who, uh, you know, just those sharing right, little right, toys, right. you know, because kids are going to want to hoard those and keep them to themselves. So you want to think Yeah, I don't think toys. we're definitely, yeah. well, we're definitely not there. I'm thinking more just play with a toy next to another child playing with the toy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? or, any, yeah or anything like a parachute game where you're all shaking oh, yeah. the big parachute. That's real fun, and that's where I would see, uh, or where where the adults are blowing bubbles and everybody's popping kind of the same group of bubbles that were, you know, anything like that. The, the growth matter activities, we are going to always see that positive attention first versus right. those sit-down activities. That's just that's been my experience over 20 years. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. I feel like we were a little bit disjointed today because we had so many technical yeah. problems. But I hope that you got some some answers, Melinda, or some positives out of out of us talking together. I did. Together. I did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I and did, I hope yeah. I can have you back on another day where we may not be as challenged <laughs> technologically as as okay. we were today. And I hope that you won't think that we play based people are kooky. And that you can make some good changes in your uh, ABA world with those of us who don't do it quite like you do it still have some benefits right. and some positives to offer kids too. And vice versa. I, I hate it when right. 
we're not considering that uh, for a lot of us, we do need to be more structured with how we look at our goals and, and approach families and children because some kids really do do need that yeah. you know, one-on-one focus. We are going to get through this approach before they're able to make any kind of progress. So there's room for right. all of us. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Okay, good deal. All right. Well, thanks, Melinda. You've been a great guest. I love talking to you. Listen, is there a teachmetotalk.com product that you want that you don't have that I can send you for thanking um, you for being on the show? Um, no, no. Actually, I think I have. Um, anyways, I just ordered the DVD, so. <laughs> well, there you go. Let me see. If, uh, well, I'm just going to have to go back and look at your order history and see what little freebie I can throw in there for okay. you. So thank you for being such a wonderful guest. Thanks okay, so much. Well, thank you. All right. Okay. All Let right. me just give a heads up for next week's show. We're going to have Dr. Carol Zangarion, who's going to talk to us about um, AAC that she was supposed to be on the day that I had kidney stones, and so we're having her back. Um, the week after that, we have a great morning series from Texas, so we've got a good message for you.